Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, may you send your spirit to anoint every word that I say. Would you open our hearts to receive a word of hope, a word of conviction, a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word of equipping, that we might know the love that you have lavished on us as a father, as a mighty and merciful father, a welcoming, all-wise Father, who has given us the greatest gift of all, your Son, Jesus, who is life, who is love, who is hope, who is peace, who is our future, uh, who is our inheritance, who is our brother, who is our king, who is our our, uh, great and mighty God. Uh, Father, please, would you be present uh, and move us to a greater obedience, to a greater affection, uh, renew our minds, bend our wills, subdue our affections that we might savor you, Jesus, our Savior. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. Amen. Well, as a kid, I don't remember exactly how old I was. Several days after Christmas, I had um, the unfortunate uh, experience of having my dog. Her name was Heidi. She was a Doberman Pinscher. She found some of my new toys. I'd gotten these action figures. Uh, they were G.I. Joe action figures. And she had found them. I don't know if I left them somewhere, but she had found them. And when she, when she got them, she just chewed them to pieces. In fact, I remember coming into the scene. It was like a horror movie. There were body parts all over the room. And I just remember uh, seeing that they were in pieces that I basically went to pieces and started crying. And I just, you know, just, just uh, lost it. And my... And then what proceeded after that is my dad and my older brother tried to fix them. There, were, there was this sort of major emergency surgery that was being done in our house with glue and all kinds of stuff. And I sat there in tears, hoping, longing for a world in which all the pieces would be put back together again. And at the time, I didn't know it, but the Bible has a name for a world where all the pieces are exactly where they belong. The Bible has uh, a word for where, a world in which all the pieces are, have been put back together again, a world where all the pieces fit together perfectly, a world in which everything works like it was made to. That word is peace. And after several hours of emergency surgery, <laughs> my dad came to me, sort of just like a doctor coming to a person with the sad news, the surgeon saying, listen, uh, he, he, and, he and my brother couldn't fix the action figures. What the dog had done couldn't be undone. And I went to pieces again. But this time, there was difference. Before, I had some, some sense of hope. Maybe dad or my brother could make this thing work. This time as I cried, I realized there was no hope. This past week, I spoke to a man whose marriage had come to an end. His health was failing. His relationship with his only uh, son, his only child, his son, was on the rocks. And he said to me, I feel, his exact words, I feel like my life has gone to pieces. And I just, he said, I, really, I, I just really struggle to have hope anymore. And then he said, I've come to hate 
this time of year. I feel like it's one massive reminder of how insanely broken my life is. I can't escape how I long, so I can't, it's this time of year, I can't escape how long I have, I, how I long to have my life put back together again. Of course, this man didn't say it, but what he was longing for, in longing for his life to be put back together again, he was longing for what the Bible calls peace. Again, not just a sort of an inner serenity, not just a, a healing of relationships, but this idea that all the pieces are where they belong. And that's why we love a new car. Or something, we buy something and it's brand new. It's working just like it was designed, just like it was made to work. That's what the Bible calls peace. And Advent is about that longing for, that deep desiring of that peace. And let me ask you, do you, do you long for that kind of peace? Right, wrong, good or bad? Do you long for your life, all that's all, that's all shattered in pieces, to be put back together again? Do you dare to desire a peace like that? So again, Advent is precisely about that longing. And if Advent is about the desiring of peace, Christmas itself the Christmas story, the, the, the arrival, the final climactic arrival of Jesus, Christmas itself, is about the declaring of that peace. Did you hear that? What did the angels declare? Verse 14 of chapter 1, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That is, the angels say, praise to God in the highest heavens, praise to him, the one who gives peace to earth or on earth. And to whom does he give that peace? Those upon, whose, upon whom his favor rests. That is to say, those with whom he is pleased. And Luke's story here, this beautiful story of these 20 verses in chapter 2, they call us to that peace. And I just want to take a very brief, I just want to walk through this passage because what's so beautiful, what's so encouraging about this story is that what is being, what is being declared, what is being celebrated by these angels is a peace that doesn't need the power of princes. It is a peace that doesn't even need God's people to be in the right place. It's a peace that doesn't need the power of, of the politics, the, the, the place, the, the God's people to be in the right place, nor, nor does it need even the notion of privilege, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of status, the pursuit of popularity, and all the ways that we think about privilege. So let's look at this story again just briefly to look at how this peace doesn't need so often what we think we need to have peace. Especially in the last two or three years in America, we have seen how our culture is divided, so polarized over politics. And why is that? Because it seems that both sides, I don't care if you're progressive or conservative, liberal or, or, or whatever it be, a Republican or Democrat, everyone thinks that everything's at stake. And here we have in this story the mention of probably one of the greatest, uh, uh, greatest political figures in history. Right there in verse 1, in, the, in, the, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Understand that Caesar Augustus, known to historians as Octavian, was the first emperor 
of the Roman Empire. He's the guy that made the Roman Empire. Okay? Not only was, not only was he so, so influential and so long-lasting and so uh, impactful in his reign, that he's the guy, the, the Roman Senate actually named a month after him, the month of August. Imagine that, having a month named after you. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty impressive, right? He's the guy that launches the 250-year reign called the Pax Romana. This guy made an impact. And guess, guess, how, guess how in the know he is about what's happening here. He's completely oblivious. See, the, 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 birth, the story of the birth of Jesus is incredibly subversive politically. It looks at Caesar and just shrugs, shrugs his shoulders. Looks at political power and yawns. There's a sense it doesn't need the power of Caesar for God's purposes, for this peace to come about. In fact, uh, this, this issuing of a census isn't just some, we often think of the U.S. government, you know, issuing a census or having a census every 10 years. This is about one thing. It's about money. It's about gaining more money. It's about higher taxation. It's about how, this, how Caesar Augustus sees the, his subjects. They are nothing more than a source of income. If you look in Acts chapter 5, there's a listing of various would-be messiahs, messiahs who came in the time of Jesus and, and, and mounted to nothing. And one of those, one of those um, would-be messiahs, he, he, rises to, he rises to revolt. And why does he revolt? Because of a census. Does that make sense? In other words, a census brings about a revolt among the Jewish people against the Roman authority because they're so tired of being taxed just up the wazoo. So this, this idea of, of taxation, this idea of a census, is just one more way of saying, here's political power, and it's corrupt. There's nothing here to be found that is hopeful. So again, this is a peace that doesn't need the power of princes. And you may think, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, like, like, we're not going to expect much good to come from Caesar, from a dictator. But we don't live, wake up, we don't live in a dictatorship. We don't live in, you know, some sort of tyranny. We live in a democracy. We live in a, in a different world. It's a different political order. Surely there is hope in Congress. Surely there's hope in a president. Surely there's hope in the greatest constitution that has ever, you know, among, that's ever been written among men. Surely, if any political system can bring about peace, surely it's America. And that is one of the biggest reasons why we're at each other's throats trying to figure out the right way to bring peace. It must be Republican, it must be Democrat. And I just want to just very briefly suggest to you that democracy is just as dangerous as any dictatorship. Because in a dictatorship, listen to this, you have, in a dictatorship, you have the tyranny of Caesar. And you can see it and you know it's unjust. You know it's oppression. You can see it's there. But in democracy, there's a different tyranny. It is not the tyranny of Caesar. Are you ready for this? It's the tyranny of self. See, in the ancient world, the Roman world, the Pax Romana was the Pax Romana. Do you know why? Because as long as you didn't disobey Caesar, as long as you said, hail Caesar, you could do anything you wanted to do. 
But in the Pax Americana, you can do whatever you want to do just as long as you don't what? Somehow rebel against the power of self. And listen, this is so easy to understand as parents. What, parents, what would happen to your child if you let them do whatever they wanted to do? And now we have, we have a, this, this system of, 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 of political, of, of political uh, uh, structure, system that does what? You do whatever you want to do. It is not the tyranny of Caesar, it is the tyranny of self. And, and whereas Caesar, you can see that tyranny. But I don't know about you, but I can't see the tyranny in my own self. See, it's easy to see sin outside of us. I'm blind to the sin within me. And say it this way, sin, if you will, remember this, sin, if you will, is a lot like bad breath. I can smell everyone else's bad breath, but what? Mine, oh, it's fine. Right? Or body odor is the same way. I can smell other people's body odor, but I'm, I'm fine. Right? We can, we can see sin in others, but we can't see it in ourselves. And so what democracy does is create this world in which everyone is going around seeing everyone else's issues, but not their own. Where self is supreme, and it's killing us. It's absolutely destroying us as a nation. Brothers and sisters, the peace that, that, of which the angels that, that they celebrate is a peace that comes that doesn't need the power of princes or presidents. In fact, if I can just briefly say, I was just reading fairly recently a, a, a wonderful uh, book by a, a, a Nobel-winning economist by the name of Robert Fogel. And it's called, it's called, the book is called The Fourth Great Awakening. And he, and he talks about how in the history of America there have been times of, of real decline, like moral decline and economic decline and division. That the, 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 the fissures that we see in America today, the, tr- the sorrows, the woes that we have as a culture, are not new. They've been here before on several occasions. And understand, Fogel's writing not as, not as a Christian, he's writing as an, as an economist, a Nobel Prize winning economist, and his thesis is, is amazing. He talks about how since colonial days, America has periodically been swept by movements that have restored, that have restored and he, about healing to the various fissures and, and failings of, that we have had as a, as a culture. Do you know what those are, those movements are? He says they're called Great Awakenings. He says, basically, he says, listen, if there's going to be peace for America, it's going to happen what? Not through politics, but through a great awakening, through a church's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Christians loving their neighbors. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so this peace comes, again, this peace comes not through politics or through political power, but nor does it come through the church. This is so interesting. Look in, look in verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. So, verses 4 and 5 says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, Joseph and Mary are just doing, doing whatever Caesar tells them to do, like everybody else. They're completely unaware that what God is doing is moving Mary from Nazareth in the north to where? To Bethlehem in the south. Why? Because according to the prophet Micah, guess where the Messiah is to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea. 
And so here's God's people. It's not like, it's not like you know, Joseph's sinner flipping through Micah and going, hey, Mary, we need, to get our, we need to get ourselves to Bethlehem. He's clueless. He has no idea. And so often we can be discouraged by the church. We can look at the church and say, oh, it's not what it should be. Look at its hypocrisy. Look at its failings. Look how just, it's just sort of doing whatever Caesar tells it to do. But this is a peace that comes not with the help of the power of princes or the power of presidents or even the, 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 the you know, obedience of the church. Joseph and Mary are just doing whatever they're doing. They're not, we're not, they're not here praised for their obedience. They're, not praised, they're just kind of going along with, with uh, the, the, the rest of, rest of the population. So again, this peace doesn't need presidents. It doesn't need the God's people nor does it even need privilege. Look at verses, look at verses uh, of 6 through 8. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger, because there was no guest room for them available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So here we see this, again, it's a, a very humble circumstance. We don't quite know the details here. It seems that most likely Joseph and, and would have gone to Bethlehem. He would have had family. Even if he had never met that extended family, they would have certainly opened their open their home to him, and they would have been living some, somehow in that compound or in that house along with them. And they're just poor. This is all they have. And then we're introduced to these, these, these peasant shepherds. They're nothing of no account. They're, they have no wealth. There's nothing here that speaks of any kind of privilege. But what does God need to bring about the peace that that's proclaimed by the angels? He needs a manger. Not bad. He doesn't need the, 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 all, all manner of privilege. Doesn't need education. Doesn't need um, uh, you know some sort of status. Doesn't need titles. Doesn't need all the trappings of privilege. He needs a manger. It reminds me of oh, this is a long time ago. It's my age, but I grew up watching a show. One of my favorite shows called MacGyver. You remember watching MacGyver? MacGyver always brought a, He always had one thing on him all the time, and it was the one thing that he always needed to get out of every every sort of bind. You know what it was? Do you remember what he would take with him everywhere? What's that? Yeah, a pocket knife or something else that he had. It was duct tape. He always had duct tape with him. Duct tape was sort of the, the, sort of the, the panacea to all issues. He'd pull out of his thing of duct tape, and he would construct this thing, and he would, uh, he would save the day. What does God need to bring about his plan? He needs a manger. Think about that. God doesn't need the power of princes. He doesn't need even God's people. He doesn't need privilege. And I just can't tell you, gang, listen, that speaks to where our lives are. So many of us, we are pursuing privilege. We want privilege for our kids. We want, we want the more you earn, the more you learn. We want them to have, uh, to be good at sports, or good at school, good at whatever it may be. And, Jesus, and, and, and what Luke is saying are these things don't really matter. On Wednesday this past, this past week, early in the morning, I opened up Facebook just briefly, and I got an instant message from a man that I had known from a number of years ago. An extremely wealthy businessman, a Christian man, and he said to me, he, the message said, please give me a call as soon as possible. I really need your help. And I called him up, and I said, hey, is, what's going on? And he uh, has four children. Well, one of them is a young man who he said is um, incredibly depressed right now. Is, uh, you know, is, is borderline suicidal. He's distant from God. 
and he, he described the struggle of his son in very clinical, sort of sterile terms. This is his diagnosis and situation. And then there was this pause on the phone. I don't know, five or six seconds, and I thought, I thought maybe the line had gone dead or something. And suddenly, gang, I heard the phone wailing. Just wailing. Here's this man, probably early 60s, wailing for his son. And he says, he said, Bruce, he said, I, since we last met, he says, I was worth a lot of money when we met. He says, I have made millions more in the last two or three years. My wife and I, we have great health. He said, I would do anything. I would give it all away for my son to know Jesus, for him to have a peace. See, all the privilege in the world isn't going to help bring about this peace. Here are these lowly, these lowly persons, a peasant teen girl, peasant shepherds, nobodies, and they have an encounter They have an encounter with God that transforms their lives, that will give them a peace, a peace that passes understanding, a a, a promise that says one day the parts, the pieces will fit in the right place. And so these these shepherds, they're they're doing their thing. They have no role in this. They just just happen to stumble upon this. And and the angel appears to them, declares this message of of hope, of a Savior being born, gives the the, the secret and sort of the key uh, key to find the child uh, uh, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And this great company, this great host of angels declare a peace, a peace that this child will bring. Where is the peace found? Listen to this. This is so important. It's not found in princes or presidents. It's not found in God's people. It's not found in privilege. Listen to this. Peace is found in believing that the plan of God is going forward. Luke shapes this narrative from beginning to end to show that God is working his purposes unwittingly through princes. Isn't that that wonderful? Caesar has no clue that he is involved in fulfilling the plan of God. He is unwittingly using the people of God. He is unwittingly using those who are just shepherds, just clueless. They have no idea. And it's all going forward. And, the way, and, and at the very end of it, we see, these, we see Mary and we see these, these, these uh, uh, peasant shepherds who are just blown away that things are happening according to a divine plan. They're like, they can't believe this is exactly what the angels said. Let's read this together. It's, I love, I love how, how he says, verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Isn't that beautiful? Everything is happening just like the angel said. Just like God had planned. His purposes are going forward. That is the hope of Advent. 
that God's purposes in history will stand, and they will stand whether or not who the president is or who the princes are or whatever it may be. They will stand however the people of God, whatever the people of God, whatever their condition may be. They will stand regardless of how much privilege we have or don't have. They will stand because God will get his way.